We are looking at a passage today in the gospel, uh, in gospel of Mark, which we're going through. It's uh, chapter 7, but I'm going to read the Matthew passage, which is the same exact count with a little bit more detail. In Mark chapter 7, uh, you would start with verse 24. And this is a passage that um, uh, occasionally I will uh, look at atheist sites and uh, anti-Christian sites to see what questions they're asking, what are they saying. And so I'll look at these sites to find out. And this is one of those passages that they'll point out. And they'll go, this is the reason you should not follow Jesus Christ. This is the reason Jesus Christ was not a good dude. This is a picture of his racial bias, of his misogynistic uh, attitude toward women. This is exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about right here. And here is a classic passage, a classic story of why you would never want to follow Jesus. This is one of the reasons I'm an atheist. And this is one of those passages that people who are unbelievers, even believers, I I can tell you this, when I was younger, this is one of those passages I would read and I'd go... I don't like that story. Jesus, you were kind of mean. I don't like that. And it's one that pastors will often even skip because Jesus appears to be very rude at best, and at worst, he's prejudiced and he's misogynistic. So when we look at this story, I think it's important that we have a good understanding. I really want you to listen to me. I'm not going to put a bunch of notes. I want you to hear what I'm saying. And it made me think of a story of when I was growing up. When I was uh, in fourth grade, my mom took a job at another school as an elementary counselor. So I'd been at East Leesville, and now I'm going to West Leesville. And so I'm going across the tracks to go to an, another school. So I'm going to go with her, leaving my friends, leaving my comfort, and going from one side of the town to the other side of the town. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe this will be a good thing for me. Who, who, who knows? So I'll never forget my first day, my first day at school. You know, I don't know anybody. I don't know what's going on. I don't know where to put my pencils, my book satchel, or whatever it was that you had in my lunchbox. And so I'm kind of nervous. And the bell rings for the first recess. We go out and do recess. And I come back, and I go to the restroom, go to the bathroom. And I am literally standing at, at the bathroom there, at the urinal. I'm literally standing there, and somebody punches me in the back. I go, oh, and then he starts hitting me, and the next thing I know, I'm on the ground. This guy is hitting me, and I don't know what's going on, and this guy is, this is a a black kid who is just beating me up, and it's my first day. I don't know if this is how you get welcome. I don't know what's going on at this point, and another guy yells at him. He goes, Levi, that's the wrong white boy, (laughs) and Levi says, I don't care, (laughs) And he hit me a few more times and told me, just gave me some very good instructions to, to not ever come in there when he's there and that I should not be around him. I should just make myself clear. So I just thought, man, I want to go back. <laughs> I want to go back to the other school. And I just remember going, being, you know, I'm scared of Levi. And I'm, at, from that point, from that day, you know what? I don't, I, I don't ever remember being before. I probably was. I don't re- but that day I became prejudiced. So I'm prejudiced now. Not toward everybody. I ended up having a great friend, Kemp Clint Inslee. I looked him up. Uh, one of my best friends when I was in elementary school was a black guy, but he was nice. So what I had, I had there are, there are good black kids and there are bad black kids, but you got to show me first. It's so funny, like, like there aren't good white kids and bad black kids. But you know, that's how you know you're prejudiced when you start making terms like that, okay? And so I ended up going to a different high school, so I don't see Levi again. But that remnant stays in my heart. It's rooted. 
and it festers in some ways. And although I've gotten better at hiding it, it was still there. Even though I didn't like to admit it was still there. You know, I think that's probably what the disciples kind of felt like here. They're about ready to go into an area. Jesus only one time in his entire ministry ever leaves the country of Judea. It's pretty much just in a little 20 miles or even less, really about a 15-mile circumference circle that he's in for, mo- for the most part. But this one time he leaves and he goes up north to Tyre and Sidon area, the Syrophoenician area. It's a pagan area. It's an area that's Hellenized. They've embraced the Roman culture and the Hellenization and they've become educated and, and they look down on the Jews they're wealthy. Tyre and Sidon are wealthy seaports on the Mediterranean. They're, they're the happening cities. They're the Manhattans of the country. People are doing well. They're financially well. They're well-educated. They're doing really well. It's a great place to be if you're from there and if you're succeeding there. And even some of the Jews lived there, although they were in the minority, and they embraced that culture. And they got ahead in life more than their brothers and sisters might have. And so that word, that grace versus prejudice, we'll see it in full display as we look at this passage. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. This is the same story as Mark, just has a little more detail, beginning with the 21st verse. (coughs) And let's look at this passage that looks very difficult on the outside, that looks very offensive, that Jesus is offensive and not offensive in a good way in this passage. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, Jesus is leaving uh, his area of home, and he's withdrawing, and we're not exactly sure why if he's going here to get a rest, to get away from it. We're not sure, or God has a divine purpose, a bigger purpose. We don't understand totally. But in verse 21, and Jesus went away from there, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is a wicked area. This is where Jezebel had been from, Okay. Remember when Wanda was reading a while ago about the widow of Zarephath? Jesus is there and he's, he's talking and he says, Isaiah, today these prophecies are fulfilled. And the Bible says that they were amazed. They go, this is great. This might be a Messiah. This might be someone who can help us, uh, lead us out of this oppressive rule. This, this is great. This would be a good thing. Jesus might, Joseph's son, could it be, could he be the one that could help us? But then Jesus gives this illustration because he realizes, hey, you're just doing the middle class thing here. (laughs) You're not recognizing what God really wants from me here. And he says, you know what? Let me tell you something. Uh, When when God sent his prophet Elijah, after Elijah had prophesied that there would be three years of famine and after the after a bounty had been placed on his head, after Queen Jezebel, who had killed all the prophets, who had said, you must kill Elijah, after he had been there for three years and God had provided through him through a brook and through ravens and all that ran out, he said, I want you to go into Zarephath, to the Tyre and Sidon area. In- incidentally, Jezebel is Sidonian. She's from this area. I want you to go there. That would have been, I don't even know what Elijah was thinking. He was thinking, God, you, can you do something else? I want you to go there and there'll be a woman there. And he gets there and there's a woman there picking up sticks for, for firewood. And that's unusual because you must be poor or have very little to be picking up sticks because if you would, you're going to cook a meal. You can't put pick much with the sticks, and God says, um, Elijah, that's the woman. What? She's a poor woman of Zarephath? She's one of these Sidonians? And, all right, he goes up to her, and he talks to her, and asks her what she has, and he, she says, I just have a little bit of 
flour and just a little bit of oil. And I'm going to make a cake for my son who's weak. And then we're both going to starve to death. That's all I got left. He said, well, give it to me. And God somehow has spoken to her through a revelation. We don't know, but somehow she was prepared. Just like I don't know how God is leading people in the Mideast to Christ like he is right now, how he's giving Muslims dreams and revealing himself. I don't know how that's all happening, but he does it because he's the divine God of the universe. And somehow he has done that, and this woman says yes, and she gives what little bit she has, even though she has a son, even though she has nothing left. And then God uses what she has so that it is endless, that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil where she's able to take care of her son until the end of the famine and she's provided for. And Jesus tells this story, the great prophet Elijah, and he says, you know, there were lots of widows in Israel, lots of Jews, but God sent Elijah to this Syrophoenician woman, to this woman of Zarephath, and he used her because she was humble and because she was seeking. He could have picked anybody, but a lot of people missed it. And God chose her. And when he said that, and then he, gave, he gets another story about Naaman, they wanted to kill him. Because why? When they thought of the Syrophoenicians, when they thought of the Syrians, they thought of hatred. And there's no way you can be the Messiah, and you're affirming her. You're affirming them. You're saying God's working out to touch them, and God wants to touch them. God wants to use them. And they have the same right as we do. And they were so mad, they wanted to kill him. Literally. Go back and read the passage. And so here we are in Tyre and Sinan, and behold, a Canaanite woman from the region. We know she's a Syrophoenician from the other text, a Greek. She's Hellenized. She's, she's been taught when Alexander Great came in and he conquered all the known land. What did he Through the influence of Aristotle, we talked about this a while back. He encouraged them all to be Hellenized, to be educated, because he felt like Greek culture was uh, the, most, the highest form of learning and of culture. And if everybody can do this, then the world can be at peace and harmony and unity, and things can be better. And if you're not, you're just a dog, you're just a barbarian if you're not willing to adopt this. And this culture had, they had adopted, they had fully embraced Hellenization, even the Jews in there. And so they looked down upon the other Jews and they looked down, if you were a Syrophoenician, you just looked down and all. Why? Because economically, educationally, you were superior to them. And then this Canaanite woman from that region comes out and she's crying, have mercy on me. This is a beggar's term. It's like, give me a dime. Can I have a buck? Can you give me a piece of bread? It's a beggar's term. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now, how does she know that term? I don't know. She's probably heard the stories because, remember, there are some other Jews. They've heard the stories of Jesus. Maybe, they've even, maybe it's even been passed down. She remembers. Remember, there was another widow in Zarephath that's over 800 years ago. I don't know if that story's been passed down. God has given her revelation. I don't know how he's done it. I don't know how he does it. But somehow she's, she knows. She knows of Jesus. She knows this messianic title, Son of David. And part of it, maybe because she's well-educated, maybe she's talked to people. She's got a, a kid that is desperate, and she's thinking, who can take care of him? And she's been asking, and so she hears of Jesus, and now Jesus is in her home, in her homeland. Oh, Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he didn't answer her a word. Well, that seems kind of rude. You talk to somebody, and they don't talk back to you? That's because we don't understand the culture there, do we? So here's the way it works in this honor-based culture. Even today, it's much like this, particularly in a Mideastern culture, but particularly in Jesus' time and ancient time. There was an honor system. 
and men dealt with men. And unless you were a woman who were a relative or a close friend or the relative of a close friend or somebody that you had directly work with, you didn't talk to women in public. It was an honor thing. And a woman didn't approach you. If she did approach you, it was usually only for one reason. It wasn't a good thing. So you would be dishonored as a woman calling out to a man that you did not know. Not to mention they're in a whole other nation. They're in a whole other culture where they are looked down as dogs. Okay? He continues. And so this is Jesus is being a proper rabbi. This is not how, if you wanted to talk to them, then she would have to go get a man, a man who is associated. She'd ask a question. He'd come ask on her behalf. That's not what she's doing. But by the way, Jesus didn't obey all the cultural traditions. We know he talked to the woman at the well, a woman called adultery, a woman who broke the incense. He kept, he kept breaking that rule all the time, by the way. So, but here, he's doing exactly what he's supposed to do, at least culturally. But he didn't say a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away. For she's crying after us. Well, you kind of think a lot of yourself. Oh, she's not crying for you. She's crying for me. You just hap- us just happens to be here. And they're thinking, hey, this is not our culture. This is not comfortable. They recognize that we're foreigners. They don't like us. They look down on us. And the Bible says, and he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. By the way, he's talking to the disciples right there. It's a rhetorical question. I was sent only to the lost house of Israel. I'm sitting here for the lost sheep of Israel. Isn't that right? Isn't that right, guys? You know what you think? Isn't it interesting? He's, he's left the house of Israel, and he's in a foreign land. Why is he here? This is why I was sent here, isn't it? <clears throat> and she hears it, though. And she came, and she knelt before him. And by the way, I think this is a test for the disciples when he makes that statement. He's testing them. But she came and knelt before him. This is, a, this is the position of worship. Saying, Lord, help me. There's that bigger term. She's worshiping at his feet. She's on her hands and knees, on her face before him, and say, Lord, help me. And she uses that word, curios, master. Curios, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa! Jesus, now, we need to teach you some manners. That's not respectable, even if you don't like that, even if we don't like those people. And the Israelites did, we know, they called all Gentiles dogs. And we have good reason to believe that the Syrophoenicians called the Israelites dogs. What's going on here? Well, let's talk about the socioeconomic background, what's going on in that time and that place. Now, Tyre and Sidon, again, is a happening place. They are making a lot of money. They're Hellenized. They have the favor of the Roman government, so their taxes have been really lessened, and that burden falls really more on the Israelites than it does on this area. So they're, they're able to do a lot of commerce. They're helping. They're, they're, they're in cahoots with the Roman government. They're just thriving. And so in that, they have the money and the power. They always have plenty of food. And they begin to use food, the commodity, commodity kind of on a train stock. And they begin to buy it up. And they come down to the nation of Judea and to the area of Jerusalem. And they'll begin to buy the bread up. And they'll buy it up. And it'll drive the prices up. And they'll buy a lot of it. And then the problem is, is when it's a bad year or a drought year, they buy it all up. And then the poor, particularly, they don't have food. Because those rich, Hellenized, dogs up there are taking it all. They're buying it up. We can't afford it. And even if we could afford it, they're buying it all up in the lean years. They're driving prices up. They're exploiting us. 
And they're being racially biased. And what does he say? It's not right to take the children's bread. So Jesus is doing a reversal. He's exposing her prejudice. It's not right to take the children, children of Israel. These, these are my people whom you've been exploiting. You've been taking their bread and throw it on the dogs. I'm trying to supply for them. Plus, they're supposed to be light. We know the theological message that he came first to the Jews. The Jews are to be a light. They're supposed to be sharing with all the other nations. He's fulfilling the prophecies. But he's also telling her, you know what y'all have been doing? And she recognizes, yes, she's humbled by this. Yes. And, and, and you know what's amazing is now Jesus is engaging. He, just the fact that he's speaking with her is a huge matter. He is breaking the social barriers. He is elevating her status and he's bringing his status down because he's communicating with this foreign woman and now he's in an exchange with her. He's, he's thrown out this challenge. And you see this throughout the Bible, particularly through the gospel. You'll see a challenge made and then a repost. A challenge and then a repost. What is that? Well, it's, it was kind of like a debate. And Jesus frequently gets into this with the scribes and the Pharisees. They'll throw out a statement then he'll throw out a statement. And the one who finishes it is the winner. And he's more highly esteemed than the others. They're the losers, so to speak. And so Jesus, they're always trying to trick him and catch him one of those. And then he makes this pithy, sharp response, and he shuts them up. Therefore, he wins because they have nowhere to go with it. You see that Jesus doing that all the time. Even Pilate, it even happened with Pilate. Pilate does it with him. And it happens over and over again. And you would do that with men that you respect, or you would do that maybe with an opponent that was worthy. But you wouldn't do that with someone who was unworthy. Jesus is giving her great respect and great honor by engaging in this conversation. And now they're in this challenge. She's a woman. She's a pagan. And he says, I can't throw it to the dogs. And she comes back. And what does she say? Lord, yes, you're right. I'm a dog. We have been unrighteous we have been wrong we have exploited your people your children we have taken advantage of them we have treated them as dogs we've called them dogs and I recognize that I'm a dog and that's what they call me but she uses the diminutive here the puppy but by the way dog still not a complimentary term any way you look at this all right I know sometimes we say hey big dog we think that's here but that's not the way they're thinking it's like snake if I call you a snake there's just no positive spin oh you're a good snake you know just no positive spin you're a dog it's it's bad But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This is her repost. This is her challenge back. This is her response back. And something amazing happens at this moment. She says, Lord, I recognize that, you know, I don't deserve. There's nothing I've earned, and I'm just asking for a crumb. Because I believe believe you are completely right in your judgment. You're completely right of your assessment, but I'm just asking for a crumb on behalf of my daughter. Martin Luther said this is the passage in the gospel that just wrecked him. He said, here's the message of the gospel right here. Here's a woman who recognizes that she is a sinner before Jesus. There's nothing she can do or earn or deserve it, and she's begging, and she's asking for grace, and Jesus grants her grace, not because of who she is or what she's done, but because of who he is, because of his grace. And there's nothing that she could have ever done to have made herself worthy. And Martin Luther said, this is the passage in the gospel that just kind of wrecked me. There were other writings of Paul, but this is the gospel one that really helped me see grace right here, the grace of the gospel. And Jesus does something amazing right here. What does he do? Then Jesus answered and said, oh woman. That that oh right there, that's a huge emphasis. That's like, 
wow, amazing. This is unbelievable. Oh, woman, great is your faith. It's not just you got great faith. He only uses this term right here. This is a Greek term for great. He only uses it twice. Once for the centurion who came to him and said, can you heal my servant? And he said, go. He said, I'll come to your house. He said, you don't even have to. You can just say the word and he'll be healed. And he said, I've not seen so great a faith as in Israel. It means mega. Mega is your faith. And he says this one directly to her. He just said it about the centurion. He looks at this woman and he says it. And he doesn't say this to anybody else. He says, oh, woman, mega is your faith. You've got little revelation. You're outside of the culture. You've been into the middle class, upper class privilege, and you haven't had to, but now you are humbling yourself. You are broken, and you are recognizing me as Lord, and you don't have all the information, all the background, but you believe. You believe so much, you are humbling yourself. You will be an outcast to, the, to your culture and to those who see this. They would look down upon you because you are begging and recognize me as your curious your Lord. He said, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And your daughter was healed instantly. And you know what's really amazing about this? Jesus ends the challenge. The debate is over. And you know, and she won. Whoa. He didn't come back, but, and he could because he does it every other time. But in this instance, he allows her to win. We're, remember, the, some of you weren't here. The very first verse, we started the service off. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. When we started at 11, uh, at 1045, and it said, even the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve. Jesus is serving her. He breaks down the racial barrier. He breaks down the religious barrier. And he breaks down the gender barrier. People talk about Jesus being a chauvinist or that the Bible is misogynistic. Let me tell you something. Nobody was treating women, particularly foreign women, like he was. Nobody honored. He honored her. She now has been spoken to as, as, as an equal, and she wins the challenge. And also, her daughter is healed. Wow. Wow, beautiful picture of the gospel right there. That we come recognizing that we are spiritually poor, that we are bankrupt, that we are broken. There's nothing we can do to earn or deserve the grace of God. But we recognize who he is, that he's our only hope. And we bow down and we say, curry us, have mercy on us, save us. And he does so, not because we've earned it, deserve it. And he saves us. And he elevates us, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us and because he chooses to serve and to give himself. And once we've done that, the only response we should have is one of worship and awe, of humbling grace. He exposes the woman's prejudice. He exposes the disciples' prejudice. And he exposes our prejudice. So, fast forward my story with Levi. Haven't seen him. I uh, graduate from college, I come back, I've been in the Philippines, I come back, I take a job teaching and coaching at a little double-A high school, about uh, 25, 30 minutes from where I grew up, and so I would drive through town to get to work, and um, I'm driving, one day I decided, you know, I'll just go this direction, 
not a lot of traffic where I live, trust me, but I thought, I'll just go this way. It's kind of the other side of town, uh, other side of the track. I'll, I'll just drive this way this time and uh, just do something different. And uh, I see some guy walking uh, north. I'm, I'm headed south. And driving, I'm going, that's Levi. Levi, I haven't seen Levi in a long time. And then I remember, start stirring my head, my mind, Levi. He beat me up in the fourth grade. I didn't do nothing. Even when he knew I was the wrong guy, he still hit me again. <laughs> and it's going through my head. I hope Levi's not doing well. And I'm thinking these bad thoughts in my head. And by the way, these are also the same times I'm praying about ministry. God, what do you want me to do with my life? God, do you want me to go and mission? you want me to do full-time? you want me to go to seminary, Lord? So I just pray, God, can you just give me an answer? A few days go by, and I'm driving another day, and I go that way again. And this day it's raining. It's kind of cold, and I see Levi. He's got a coat. He's hunkered down. He's walking. It's just like God spoke to me and just said, you got to stop. I said, God, you know, Levi might still want to beat me up some more. He told me not to see him again. <laughs> he told me to stay out of his way. I remember that. He told me eight years ago just, or ten years ago he'd just stay out of his way. He said, and I just felt like convicted. If you don't stop, it's because you're prejudiced. It's not because he's going to beat you up. drive back. I go, hey, can I give you a ride? He didn't, he didn't recognize me. Levi gets in the car. He said, thank you for picking me up. I said, yeah. I said, uh, Levi. He goes, yeah, how do you know my name? I said, I'm Ron. We start talking. He goes, oh, yeah, I remember you. How are you doing? <laughs> we start talking. Not take him. He's working at the bank that I was, that I banked with. And so I took him over there and dropped him off. And I started doing that as often as I could. Every time I'd see him, pick him up. And we started talking. And and became uh, pretty good friends and got to know each other, reacquainted. I got to hear his story. He grew up without a, without a father, and he grew up in an abusive situation and grew up very poor, and he was still very poor. Just a lot of things had not gone right. Very, very hard and crushing life. And now he doesn't have an education, and uh, his car's broken down, can't afford to fix it, and there's just, I mean, it's just a hard time. And... Uh, and I begin to appreciate and understand a little bit better about the difference in my world and Levi's world. My world of middle class privilege. And maybe if I lived in his world and his situation for multiple reasons, I might be angry. And I might have a resentment toward white people or toward other people. Maybe that's where I would be as well. And I didn't see that in him. And I don't know if he had or not. We, we didn't talk about if we were resentful toward each other and God just kind of exposed that to me and I remember leaving when I, I moved away not too long later and uh, moved to Fort Worth I ended up living in a building where I was the only white person in the building and and it was so good for me to change my paradigm to recognize how blessed I was and to understand things like when I can't afford to go to the doctor and when I don't have enough food for the rest of the month and uh, having bias shown against me on a regular basis. Um, I think that one of the reasons that most of us struggle and none of us, we, none of us think we're prejudiced and we all are. That's just the bottom line. So let's just say it out there. And some of you are resenting. I said that you are okay. You are. We're, we all have socioeconomic prejudice. We look at people. That's, there's a reason. So let me just ask you a question. If you're not prejudiced, how come you've probably never invited somebody of another race to church? 
you're not prejudiced, if there's somebody on your street from a different nation or a different background, have you gone over and welcomed them here? Well, that doesn't mean I'm prejudiced. Pretty much, yeah, it, it, it does. Jesus is saying to take the gospel, not just to Jerusalem, into all nations. That's what Acts 1, chapter 1, verse 8. Sometimes we get guilty of going on mission trips so we can go help the poor people. And we get back, listen to this girl from Mexico. She said, you know, I met all these Americans that came over on mission trips that wanted to mission me, was the word. She goes, but then when I got here, none of them really wanted to be my friend. And I realized they just wanted to mission me. So, you know, we're big on missions here. We're going to keep being on missions. We're going to go to missions. But what about the mission next door? What about the mission down the street? What about the mission at work? I was talking to, a matter of fact, it was an African-American family one time here. And I was saying, I really want to get you all plugged in. I want to, get you all. I want to go to lunch. went to lunch with a guy. And he goes, you know, honestly, we're probably not going to be coming back to your church. Just don't feel like it's a fit. And I said, well, what could we do to do a better job? And he said, well, let me tell you something. He said, we've got a neighbor that goes to your church. They've been going to your church for a long time. He said, and they, they've seen us and know us. We've just talked outside. We've never been in their house or anything. But, um, and we know that they go to your church. They've never invited. And they saw us at our church. They never said anything. He goes, uh, I don't know if that says to you, but it says a lot to me. We can say stuff like this. Well, but you know, Flower Mound, this is a wide area. Well, it kind of is. I, I get that. But you know what the statistics are? 4% within 10 minutes of this church. 4% are African-American. 8% Asian. 7 to almost 8% Hispanic. Guys, we have 2,000 people that call this their home. We don't have 4%. You know what 4% is on that, right? 4% is 40. 8%. We're not there. And this is not beat you up. This is an awareness message with a gospel. I think if Jesus is here, and every time Jesus saw somebody who came to culture, it's like Jesus made a beeline to them. There's the woman caught in adultery. There's the woman at the well. Here's the Syrophoenician woman. I mean, like he went out of his way. Who are you going out of your way with the hope of the gospel? Is it real or is this one of those times where you just go, I just don't know why. I just don't matter. Grace or prejudice? Grace? Oh, I would love to. I would love to reach out. I would love for our church to be more diverse because Jesus talks about in Revelation how every tribe and every nation, every tongue are going to be blessing the Lord. I'm not saying that asking for something unbelievable, unreal. I'm saying, could we just walk across the street and invite, encourage, and welcome? When somebody new at work, I hope you're doing that for everybody, but can we go the extra mile? Remember, the gospel was, came first to the Jew. We're all outsiders. We all are. So that's my challenge to you. Next week, we're going to have men and Nehemiah here. And I got two people, two friends that are coming from different faith backgrounds that aren't Christian. And I've invited them. I've got another friend that's got an addiction that's coming. I, I say they're coming. They all tell me they are. You know how that goes too. But um, you know why I got them that week? Because I know they will feel like they culturally fit. And that they won't be, hey, I'm the only one. And they're going to hear testimonies and they're going to be hard. I'll tell you that. If you've got children, that bothers you. I get it. Send them to Sunday school that day. 
But I want to ask you, this would be a good time if you know somebody from a different background. This would be a great Sunday to invite them next week. It's one of the reasons we do it. It's not the main reason, but it's a, it's a great benefit. Here's, here's a good opportunity. I want us to pray. Father, so many of us have Levi moments. So many of our brothers and sisters from different backgrounds, whether they be Hispanic or Indian or Asian or African-American, they have a lot of Levi moments. They can tell about what white people have done. And God, I, I want to ask your forgiveness of getting stuck, of buying into the lie that, Lord, this is for us. This is for me. For people who look like me and act like me and think like me. People who make me feel comfortable. People who make me feel good about myself. People who don't challenge me. People in whom I can't lose status. People in whom I won't feel embarrassed if they say no. God, I pray that this week we would walk across the street. We'd walk across the hall. We would walk down the aisle. And Lord, we would begin a relationship with someone and find out if they need the hope of Christ. But we would start by just being interested in them, just caring enough to say that, you know what, I want to do something about the problem in our, United, in our states today, this racial tension. And I'm going to pray, but not only am I going to pray, I'm going to build relationships with people of different backgrounds that maybe I don't understand and I don't know. But God, I know that's what you did. Jesus, I know that's what you continually did. You continually went to South Dallas. You continually left your area. You continually invited people that made other people uncomfortable. Lord, I pray that we would love you so much that we would take to heart Mark ten forty five. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Why would we do any less? Why would we not see ourselves to here to serve you, Jesus, by being your hands and your feet and reaching around our neighborhoods and inviting people to come in so that they might know the hope and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, burden us, convict us. Forgive us. In your name I pray. Amen.